Hello everyone, I'm Joe Van Hoogen and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and The Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work around the world and in our community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And now into God's Word we go. In Romans chapter 5, we are presented with the problem of sin that is so deep and so profound that there is no answer for it in ourselves. The whole world is under the sentence of sin and death. Only Jesus can deliver us. And it is the purpose of the law that God gave to convince us that there is no answer for our sins or the world's sins in our own moral performance. Only the Lord Jesus can save us. If you believe that through that work of the cross, he has begun this great work that reverses all the flow, Paul says, that Adam initiated. And now as a negative, and Jesus as the positive, in an abounding way, is bringing his life and his power, then you might believe that he has the power to save you, and you would also believe that you can add nothing to that salvation. You can add nothing to what he's going to bring to this earth. There are all kinds of individuals with their desire to perfect and make the world better. And the Bible does say that the Christian is like salt and light. We are like this preserving influence. What we do is we slow the decay. That's what salt does. We slow the rot of this world, but we don't reverse it. Once it's dead, it's dead and it's just rotting. But there's a Savior who's died for us, who's coming and His work reverses it all. He raises it back to life. He's promised a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness shall abide. Now, you can't add anything to do that. There's nothing you can do to somehow make his salvation more complete. You just receive it in your spiritual and moral weakness. Without any strength in your own, you receive it. And when you do, well, you just confirm what Paul says. Therefore, in the very first verse of this chapter, therefore, having been justified by faith, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Jesus paid it all. All to Him, I owe. That's why we say. Now, it's for the purpose of bringing us to this faith, this saving faith that in utter weakness clings to the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ alone, that Paul tells us that the law entered onto the scene. And you see this in verse 20. In verse 20, and this is what we're going to consider the rest of this morning. It says, moreover... The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. This goes along with what we've just read in verses 13 and 14. So let me read to you verses 13 and 14 as well. There it says, For until the law sin was in the world, people were just going on sinning. And by the way here, Paul is speaking about the arrival of the law at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And he's basically, until the Ten Commandments were given, sin was still in the world, But sin was not imputed. The word means it wasn't accounted for. It wasn't fully accounted for because it's not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Adam sinned in a way that other individuals hadn't sinned. We'll talk about this in just a moment. But people were, after Adam, they were still going on and sinning. When Moses came, they went on sinning as well. They would continue to go on sinning. But what happened is the law brought a clarity to an understanding of the perfect will of God, that spoken law, that written law, that law that was written in stone that God gave to Moses, gave a clarifying of the law so that men might take a greater account of it. They might understand it more. We spoke about this last week. You can be sick with a devastating disease and delay going to the doctor because you don't want to get the diagnosis. 
You're afraid of it. But eventually, you go and get a diagnosis. And at that moment, you take full account of your sickness. The doctor tells you what caused it, how it's progressing, how it will progress if it's not treated. And here's the deal. The doctor did not cause you to be sick. He just caused you to take an accounting of your sickness. That's what the law does. It brings you into account of the disease of sin within you. And that's why it was given on the mound. I want to talk about this a little bit more. It says here again, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And so we need to talk about the law here, but just a couple of preliminary thoughts here about the law first to kind of lay a little bit of background and groundwork here. When we're considering this passage, we recognize that Paul is speaking about, when he says the law entered, he's speaking about the Ten Commandments that were given that codified, in a sense, and clarified the moral law of God. But what we need to understand is that that's the time and place in which the moral law of God was, in a sense, clarified and codified and stoned to the nation of Israel so they could read it, so that they could pledge themselves to it, so that they could follow in it. But here's what you need to understand. The moral law predates the written law. That's why men were still sinning. They didn't sin after the likeness as the Israelites sinned after the moral law was given. You know why? Because the Israelites knew what the law was and they still disobeyed it. They had a clear picture of the law and those before the law had an understanding of that law. The moral law was there, but they didn't understand it clearly. They were like the individual who knew they were not well, knew that there was something not right, but they had not yet gone before the doctor for the diagnosis. You need to understand, Paul even says this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that before the law was written in code, the moral law is written on the heart of every person, so that every person has, in a sense, written and coded within them something of the moral law that God has placed upon us. And there are three reasons why I think this is true. The first reason is this. We're all made in the image of God. We've sinned and we're fallen, and it's a broken image. But still, in these ruins are still a relic and a reflection of the image of God that we're made in. And the law is fashioned around God. The law is an expression of, an expressive of how we're to respond to the truth of who God is and how we're to live out the truth of who God is. So the law says... You shall have no other gods before me. And the reason is because you shall have God. He is the one true God. And you shall not make any graven images unto yourself. Because God is spirit and those who worship him are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Bible says you're not to tell a lie. Well, the reason is because God is true in every way. And your life is to be a reflection of your surrender and submission to the truth of all that God is. And so our life and all these commands are a responsiveness to what is true of God. And now, listen, if I've been made in the image of God, there is something of the reality and truth of who God is that is resonating even in the relic of every sinful fallen man. And it's like a beacon that sounds out from the ruins, somehow directing him in a certain manner of life, in a certain expression that is true to his own making to his own construction, having been made in the image of God. And therefore, there is this weak banner or pulsation or signaling of the law of God simply because we're made in the image of God, even though we're fallen and even though we've fallen into sin and we're a relic of what it was God intended us to be. Second reason for this is that God has also created the world and he's created with physical laws that govern it, but this God has also created the world to be governed by moral laws. And so there are moral laws that govern this world because it's made by the hand of God. If you go against the moral laws of God, you eventually begin to move against the grain of God's creation. It doesn't work out well for you. And actually, there's a sense in which your conscience 
is receiving the signals that are coming to you, into you, not going out from it, but coming out from you from this creation that God has made, signaling to you how you ought to live your life in order to conform your life to the moral laws that God has made. You know, I, I've said this before. You don't actually break physical laws. You prove them. A guy jumps off of a cliff. He's not breaking the law of gravity. He's proving the law of gravity. He's going to go crash into the ground. And you don't break actually moral laws. You prove them. You begin to live a life of dishonesty. You begin to live a life of thievery. You begin to turn away from the laws that God's given you. And your life will prove it out. It'll become more difficult and more harder. You'll suffer as a result. And so there's this other thing. There's this creation that's been created with a moral law governing it that in a sense sends its messages back to us as well. And that's another reason why the moral law was there. It was in place. It's not clear. Because the fact is, our consciences don't always receive that signal properly. Our consciences can become seared. Our consciences can become hardened. We can turn away from our consciences. We can project them into a wrong direction. But it's still there. It's still signaling to us. Now here's the third reason. That the moral law, in a sense, comes before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. God's Word teaches us. You see this in John 16, verses 8 through 11. But you can also see and read about this in Genesis chapter 6. That the Spirit of God is working to contend with man. John says that he's convicting men of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he began doing that the moment that Adam and Eve fell in sin in the garden. And that moment, they knew they were naked. They tried to clothe them. They wanted to be righteous, so they tried to find some fig leaves to kind of construct some kind of righteousness for themselves so they come in the presence of God. But when God came along, they knew they weren't ready. They knew they were facing judgment, and they ran and hid. That was the evidence that the Spirit of God was already beginning to convict them of sin and the need of righteousness and their lack of righteousness and judgment as a result. So this convicting work of the Holy Spirit also makes us sensitive to moral truths. But you know, Romans 1.18 says that we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So although it's coming to us, it's imperfect, it's unclear. And so, in a sense, this moral law that's there and was there before the Ten Commandments were given were received in kind of a, a fuzzy manner. It was there, but it wasn't entirely clear. Men were not taking it into full account. Here's another thing I want to say about the law real quickly here. Whether you have this fuzzy understanding of the law or whether you've got the Ten Commandments written on a ledger on your desk so you read it every day before you begin your day, no matter how it is, this moral law produces a benefit straight away in an individual's life. Because if you live in a moral world, in a world that is created by a moral God with moral laws, and then you basically follow those laws, your life to that extent will improve. It will become easier to live. It's easier to live with the grain of the world than against the grain of what God has made and God has created. And if you don't follow those laws, you're working against the grain of creation. And as a result, this is a general rule, but life will get a little more difficult for you. You'll find hardships. Things won't work out the way you want it. And the more a person keeps that law, the more they work and live in a right kind of life according to that law, the more likely they're going to reap benefits in their life. And the more that a person violates that moral law, and the more that they turn away from those moral laws and they cheat the corners of that law, the more they're going to suffer individually, and the more the society around them is going to suffer, and they're going to go through and experience hardships. And that's just the reality. That's just an immediate benefit that you receive. Kind of like a, a practical outcome that can be derived from following the law. Now, 
Without the Ten Commandments and without knowing the Ten Commandments, what you discover is all the major religions of the world basically have implemented key elements of the laws that are in the Ten Commandments. They miss a few, but they've got a lot of them in there. They've got any, they, you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to steal, and they don't think very highly of adultery, and you find all these things coded in their various religions and put before individuals. They have some portion of the commandment, and the reason is men have figured out by trial and error that living a morally life in a morally governed world works out the best for you, and they put that into their religion, and they put that as a part of the religion. But now let me share with you the negative part of this practicality of following the law. You can be in one of those religions, a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim. You can be in those different religions and you can be in a false belief system and think that you're all good because you follow the moral laws in your life. And you can actually point to the fact that your life is measurably better than the person who doesn't follow those laws. So I'm following those laws and I'm doing them all so my life is okay and I'm right with God and you might even begin to think that you're right with God and you're even going to heaven because, well, you're better by comparison than a lot of other folks because your life is not as tumultuous as I can prove it. See, my life is working out better than their life and it's not proof that you're going to heaven. It's just proof that you live in a moral universe. It's evidence that there's benefit in going with the grain of what God has created, but it's not evidence of any saving benefit that you have before God. And this is what I'll tell you. No matter how faithful you are in following that law, even if you've never known the Ten Commandments and you're just following some rules you've constructed for your own life, no matter how good you think you are, you still sin. You still sin. Thanks for listening in today to The Bread of Life. Keep the missionaries of Church Partnership Evangelism in your prayers as they work in Ecuador and Cambodia and India and Indonesia and Greece and Bulgaria to release the body of Christ as His witnesses. Find out more by going to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.